Nordic Food Lab Radio. Uh, my name is Kim uh, Falk Peterson. Uh, I come from Greenland. I was born and raised in a small town called Kajengwit uh, at the uh, Disco uh, area, Disco Island area. But I've been living here in Copenhagen for yeah, over 10 years. Yeah. Uh, this is our way of life, and it, this is, have been our way of life for hundreds of years. Yeah, it gets pretty sickening and a bit and, and a bit tiring, like hearing, "Oh, they are so cute," and why can you, and how can you kill such a, a cute animal? Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, uh, a lot of the time, human attention is often really misplaced. We're focusing way more on the lions and the pandas of the world when really it's the archaea and the um, single-celled organisms and the algae in the oceans and in the soil. Those are the organisms that are actually allowing all other life to exist in the first place. Uh, and so that that's a problem that uh, more and more people have been thinking about and talking about and developing different strategies for describing. And one in particular that I think is really useful is this term non-human charisma because it, um, it deploys this concept that we have about people, charisma, the sort of quality of a, a person to draw others to him or herself, to to sort of concentrate human attention. Um, and it, it takes this concept that we usually use to describe people's characters or personalities, and then we, and, but we can actually you know, apply that to a lot of non-human subjects. Why are some animals better at concentrating human attention than others? It's a question worth considering because it can have deep ecological impacts. The fact that we like a certain species means we will go to further lengths to protect it, sometimes to the detriment of other species including ourselves. So you might be wondering what animal is so cute that, like Kim said a few minutes ago, people don't want it being killed. Lions and pandas certainly don't live in the Nordic region. But do you know who does? The story that we're going to tell today was started by producer Meredith Hodenot a few months ago. It's a story about grey seals and an overpopulation crisis in the Baltic Sea off of Denmark that might be easily solved if it weren't for our hesitance to kill, or eat, animals that we decide we like. That hesitance comes from something that's being called non-human charisma. Here's Josh Evans again, he's our lead researcher, to explain a little bit more. Certainly we should also care about lions and pandas, you know, I'm not arguing that, but maybe, maybe the fact that we focus on them disproportionately says more about us and our priorities than it says about actual sort of ecological value or ecological primacy. Uh, and I think that's what it really gets to. That's why it's a really important idea to have in uh, uh, an environmental movement and a conservation movement and a conservation discourse that's changing rapidly and has to change rapidly in order to address the increasingly complicated problems that we're facing in the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene in case you didn't catch what that means, is the term more and more people are using to describe the geological epoch we're in, where humans now have a significant effect on many of the Earth's processes like climate and ecology. So before we get back to the seals, there's another little story I want to tell, one that's about non-human charisma, specifically in the Anthropocene. 
we're going to take a little trip back up into the mountains of northern Sweden, where unfortunately for the Sami reindeer herders I lived with this past summer, thanks to climate change and habitat destruction, one of the biggest predators for their herds is also one of the most protected animals in the whole country. Golden eagles, well, beautiful birds, at least if you ask me. This is Jesper Andersen. He's a young Swedish birder who became a friend of mine this summer. Uh, yeah, kind of the first time I saw one was uh, on this trip with my friend uh, up to northern parts of Sweden. Um, yeah, and well, it was a pretty bad observation because we just saw it fly by pretty, yeah, pretty shortly. Mm. But afterward, I've seen yeah a few better observations as well and yeah they really are magnificent birds and it's well i'm pretty lucky to see one because they are they're pretty endangered here in sweden and that is simply because well the climate is getting warmer and uh, well in the for the eagles it's mostly because the ptarmigans and other other animals like uh, mountain hares are declining because of the yeah, the climate change. Okay. So, yeah, less prey means less eagles. Jesper has spent the last two summers in Saltalukta in northern Sweden, staying with Lila Speak, the Sami cultural teacher I was staying with as well. I had arrived about a week before Jesper, and when he did arrive, Lila's husband, Arald, who usually had a twinkle in his eye, spent the whole day grumbling about how bird lovers from the south don't care that the golden eagles take his reindeer calves. He was really, really upset about it, which struck me. The Sami have a completely different way of viewing the eagles than the birders and conservationists do. They directly affect their economic well-being, but it turns out that these huge birds can actually also do more than just that. When Lila's father was a young child, he would go up into the mountains with his father to check on the reindeer in the early spring. We are talking about the bird. It was a lot of eagles here, and we had two kinds. It was sea eagle and the a mountain eagle, if you call that, and uh, both of them like to eat reindeer calf. And uh, it was my grandfather and my father and the brothers. They have gone up to the mountain, and uh, they have. It was very early in the spring, so they have the sami pelts on first, and the inside this hair gone, so you're not will be frozen, and outside the hair. And so the children have a specially hat. And uh, so they are lying and they could see something flying and nobody think about that. And suddenly they couldn't find the little brother. He was gone. And it was a kind of river there and they were very afraid he had gone down there. But so the grandfather saw it was a funny things flying there. And when they looked, it was the eagle who have taken the little brother and flying. And they looked and so he shouted to they who live there, could you go and take your steps, who was made of a, a spruce tree because they are very heavy. They realized that the eagle had the little boy and it was flying away with him to its nest. So they grabbed the neighbor's ladder, their lassoes and some sticks and quickly crossed the river to get over to the cliffs. And they know where that eagle have the nest, so they run there and they come there and they the little boy, he cried and they could see the eagle how it do like that. And they thought, 
Now he eats the ice. Lila's grandfather quickly climbed the ladder, and knowing that the eagle was not physically capable of releasing its prey once pierced in its talons, there was only one thing they could do. The eagle, when it takes a reindeer, even when it takes a little boy, they must eat round the feet so they could lose. But they, I could say, they kill the eagle so they could take. And that was a very, very bad story. So after that, the children must have a little bell so they could hear where they are. If this happened to you, it would be easy to understand how you might feel a little less warmly about golden eagles. But someone like Jesper is straddling the two worlds, and he's not sure what to think. But yeah, uh, there is a problem, and I feel kind of split in this question, because, I mean, I am a bird watcher now, but I also know Sami people, and i kind of been living their lifestyle, sort of, uh, so I... I know how they feel, mm. so it's um, yeah, it's pretty hard because I mean, if it weren't that problem, I would definitely say, well, we should kind of do everything we can to just uh, save and preserve the golden eagles. Mm. But I mean, <laughs> you can't just you can't just don't care about these other people either. The Sami, whose traditional livelihood depends on some degree of balance within their ecosystem, are the ones to feel the pinch of habitat loss and environmental degradation of the Anthropocene. But it's not only the indigenous peoples of the Nordic regions whose traditional livelihoods are being affected. The cod fishermen of Bornholm are feeling the pinch, too. Yeah, yeah, okay, my name is uh, Kurt Buchmann. I'm a professor in aquatic pathobiology at uh, the University of Copenhagen. Seals, the gray seals in the Baltic have been there for, for a long time. This spring, Meredith interviewed Kurt as she began investigating for this story. And like any good scientist, he made sure he gave her the full context of the problem, starting from the very beginning. You know, uh, the Baltic Sea is a very um, young sea. It appeared a few thousand years ago after the glacial period where uh, all the ice melted away from the area and we got a very big freshwater lake and after a while um, uh, saltwater input came in from the Atlantic Ocean um, and um, we have a local population of cod. Uh, it, it is actually the Atlantic cod which immigrated maybe uh, between uh, five six thousand years ago and uh, during this short time of evolution, it has adapted to this low salinity sea which we have here. And it can be quite productive, actually. Um, we have seen, for some 30 years ago, that um, the uh, cod stock was more than 700,000 tons, and the fishermen could actually harvest about 90,000 tons in the start of the 1980s. Um, but it is a, a very uh, vulnerable stock because it's dependent on all the salt water and with oxygen coming in through the Danish Straits and so on. The cod adapted to the special conditions and the fishermen managed the stocks and lived plentifully off them for generations. But in recent years, there appeared some problems with the cod stock, particularly in their site-specific oxygen and salt-rich breeding grounds off the coast of Bornholm. Biologists like Kurt recognized it first. 
the number of large cod being caught didn't match the projected numbers anymore, and they couldn't initially put their finger on it, but they had a hunch, and it had to do with the seals. And uh, of course, we do not know exactly why, but at the same time, we have seen an increase of the, the population of the gray seals in the Baltic. So why this sudden increase in the seal population, the biologists ask themselves. Well, one theory is that industrial pollution, things like dioxin and DDT, levels have gone down, allowing the suppressed reproduction in the seals to rebound. A success in environmental terms has turned into another imbalance in the ecosystem. Um, the biologists are discussing if we have in the Baltic about um, 38,000 or 36,000 or 40,000, but still we know that we have now a quite a big population of gray seals. And some of the um, seal biologists suggest that um, the, uh, the level which we could reach is about 100,000 um, gray seals in the Baltic. This spells extremely bad news for the fishermen, because it's not just that the seals are now a major competition for eating the cod, their increased presence is amplifying the effects of some parasites in the ecosystem that do even more insidious damage to the cod fishery. And this is pushing a lot of folks, for whom this is their traditional livelihood, out of business. So Meredith paid a visit to Bornholm, where she met fisherman Klaus Damon Hansen, who is one of the grassroots leaders in trying to get the authorities to listen to their plight. Yeah, you know, um, Stein, he, uh, uh, Klaus he would, would like to uh, just to talk in Danish. Yes. And then, um, if you want me, I can uh, translate it for you if you want. Uh, sure, yeah, yeah whatever is easiest and however... Kurt actually came along with her, acting as her translator, and so is Marcus Junkala, the development sous chef at Cado on Bornholm. That first voice was Kurt, and the second one in Danish was Klaus. So this is the boat which is um, um, conducted by uh, Klaus Damon Jensen. He's a uh, Hansen, and 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 he is a um, he has been a fisherman here for 25 years or more, uh, 52 or. Okay, it's it is actually 28 years. Uh, Klaus has been um, fishing from from this harbor here, and it's of course mostly caught. Which, which is on the program, but you can also take some flat fishes from, from uh, the boat here. But as you know, recently uh, we have got some problems with the, the gray seal population because it, um, it has affected the uh, fish population quite a lot. But maybe Klaus would like to tell you more about that and show you around on the boat. Okay. So. Yeah, Barbies When did you start noticing problems with the with the seals? Yeah. About 2007. Before that, we could see one, maybe five, seven seals out there. But suddenly, in 2007 and the the, the following years, they increased incredibly. So, so in 2013, they counted uh, 404 on a little uh, rocky island out there, um, just next to Christians, uh, Christians Island. And what were some of the first signs? The first signs, I think, uh, when, when, you, when, when you, you could see that uh, only um, heads were, 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 were left on the gear when you, uh, you dragged in your, your nets and that uh, <coughs> the, uh, the number of cod uh, which were available during the normal fishery, they were gone. 
also the big spawners with the fishermen they know where exactly they they were standing out there in the on, on certain positions they they were gone so that were the first signs they realized yeah and actually also during the same time uh, Klaus also realized and could observe that uh, the number of worms in the in in the cod increased uh, with the same speed as he could see that the seed population increased so these things are connected it's a natural uh, connection so it's a part of an ecological system but it's not so nice for the uh, for, for the fishermen and the fishing industry and it's a problem for the cod population of course Kurt explained more about these worms to Meredith back in his office at the Copenhagen University. One is called the Pseudoterranoa and the other one is called Contrasecum and I have them here in my lab. You, I can show you some, some uh, adult worms which we find in the stomach of those seals. So the life cycle of this worm is that um, we have a male and a female worm, they copulate in the stomach of the seal. So basically, for both species of these worm parasites, the seals are the vector. That means they grow to maturity in the seal's stomach and they release the eggs that grow into worms that then get eaten by the fish and wriggle into the liver and the flesh of the cod and start munching away. The seal eats the cod and the cycle starts again. This makes more seals equal more worms, equaling fewer and fewer cod. The worms that infest the flesh of the cod also pose a health threat to humans unless they're killed off by deep freezing, a regulation that is strictly enforced and which makes this otherwise valuable fish fetch a lower price on the market. This, combined with the seals direct munching down on the cod, is ruining the lives of the fishermen on Bornholm. They are facing severe crisis for the moment because they actually last year a number of fishermen went bankrupt um, because they simply couldn't catch um, the, the uh, requested amount. They couldn't even catch up the quota which they, um, they were allocated last year. Um, so, so that is a big uh, crisis for the industry and they are trying to raise um, a debate about it and call for politicians to move in and ask for some control of the seal population. The problem that Klaus and the fishermen face is not the seals themselves, but the regulations around them. The seals are considered an endangered species in Denmark and are still protected as such despite their massive growth in population. Klaus and his colleagues realized that the first battle that needed to be fought was one of public perception, so they started a Facebook group where they could share their experiences of seal damage as well as scientific articles to back up their claims. They also hosted a public meeting last year in June, which was attended by local politicians and which frustratingly underlined the issue of perception. They, uh, they realized that there was a problem, <coughs> but we, uh, we couldn't see uh, them giving any solutions. Mm. Because, uh, I mean, one thing is to start some kind of control campaign. It means to shoot some of the seals out here. And the politicians are quite reluctant to say, yes, let's go ahead. Because they, um, they see themselves photographed on the front page uh, on the big newspapers uh, as, as the persons who are, who are actually arguing for killing seals. They, they, that was their argument so that... Um, meeting actually so but um, the fishermen are still trying to get through uh, to explain the politicians about the problem so let's mm -hmm. see what happens in the future if the seals were some other animal like rats klaus's work in convincing the politicians would be minimal so besides being really cute how is it that seals are able to attract all this human empathy well you probably know why something like this 
Canada's commercial seal hunt is the largest slaughter of marine mammals on the planet. I'd never seen that much blood. There were just lakes of it. In the 1980s, the Canadian commercial seal hunt in Newfoundland was exposed for its brutal practices in harvesting harp seal fur for the global garment industry. Hundreds of carcasses strewn across the ice, only the skin harvested, the rest laid to bloody waste. It filled the world's minds and hearts with this horrible image, leaving room for little else. Meanwhile, the traditional way of hunting seal is highly skilled and highly respectful, not wasteful in any way. But the image of the baby seal clubbing remains. It may be impossible to erase that image, but what about trying another sense? What about taste? So often deliciousness and the desire to consume is at odds with ecological ends. Just think about industrial livestock farming. But Meredith and the team thought, couldn't we eat the seals out of overpopulation and in doing so battle the public's reluctance to accept the hunting of seals with their own taste buds? Marcus Junkala, who was there on the boat with Meredith, Kurt and Klaus that day, voiced this idea. In the Nordic region, we have a... In Norway and Iceland and Greenland, we have a strong tradition of eating seal uh, to uh, not just regulate the population of seal, but also uh, try to uh, use it as uh, for its gastronomic value and not just waste uh, all the seal to actually make a product out of it. It's Eat the seals. It seems so simple, but of course it isn't. In Finland and Sweden, they've already changed the regulation to deal with seal overpopulation by restricted killings, so it's not unimaginable that it could happen in Denmark. But Kurt and the fishermen are still pragmatic. So now we're waiting for how it can be regulated in Denmark. And uh, but that's a great political debate, and um, of course, there's a lot of psychology because seals, they look cute, and it's very difficult. Who would know more about how cute people find seals than someone whose people have been hunting them for thousands of years? So we're going to go back to Kim, who we heard from in the very beginning of the episode. He's from Greenland and, of course, grew up eating seal in addition to all the other wild fish and game. He now works at the Greenlandic Representation, a kind of embassy for Greenland, which is a semi-autonomous, dependent territory of Denmark, where he says he feels a duty to represent Greenland's culture, which can be very misunderstood. Yeah. What, have you heard that argument a lot? The the seals are cute, we shouldn't hunt them? Way too often, yeah, way too often, yeah. It gets pretty uh, sickening as an uh, indigenous Greenlandic person. Like, like uh, if, if we, like, uh, speak to someone, like a tourist, that, that uh, this is our way of life, and it this is, have been our way of life for a lot of, uh, for hundreds of years. I think it's very... Uh, a, lot, a lot of people have like double standards. I mean, and, and look at your own farming and look at your own like way of keeping chicken, for example, like uh, 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 and, and look at the uh, mink uh, farming, uh, the uh, fur industry as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not really, in my opinion, not very sustainable. Yeah, and the animals aren't living in good conditions either. But uh, up in Greenland, I mean, <laughs> every animal lives I mean, in, in the most amazing environment until the second it gets shot. Um, so I really don't see like what the whole fuss is about. I really don't. Yeah, and and uh, well, and I really think that a lot of people have to look at their own backyard b uh, before uh, pointing fingers at indigenous people, especially Greenlandic people. Yeah, where I come from. 
do you think a way of maybe fighting against that stigma would be popularizing the dishes themselves and seal as an ingredient? Mm, I think it would be very diff difficult to like having people to learn how to eat seal. I, I really don't think that in my opinion it should be a way to go, I, I don't think, yeah, because as, as I said before, and the taste is very distinct and the taste is really, really special. It is, yeah. And the smell alone, yeah, so it's, it's really, really special. So I really don't think that the way to go would be like learning people how to eat um, seal in general, but, but just an understanding of like hunting of the seal it's, it's, it's okay, yeah. To Meredith's question of whether we should eat seal or not, Kim says he really doesn't think this is a good idea, but it's not totally clear why. Currently, you can only buy seal meat in Copenhagen if you're on a government database saying you're an indigenous Greenlander, so it's kind of a special right to be able to purchase seal. My concern, after listening to this tape, was whether a push by non-indigenous foodies for the commercialization of seal meat would be kind of stepping on the toes of Greenlanders. So I invited him to the lab to cook some seal meat with me and talk the politics of eating seal. The seal, by the way, was obtained totally legally, thanks to a hunter friend of ours named Jesper Schuta, since there's this loophole we won't even get into now where fish farmers can apply to shoot seals, destroying their operations. I really wanted to ask you, I mean, when, when you were talking to Meredith and she proposed the idea of people eating, like, non-Greenlandic people, non-Indigenous mm -hmm. people eating seal meat, mm -hmm. you said, you said, sure, I don't see why not, but then you also said, I don't think that's the right way to go. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder, I, I'd love to get more clear, like, your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um... Well, I, I, I don't think that I would mind like commercializing seal, seal meat, but instead of just just uh, putting the seal meat like in the stores, and you, in my opinion, you should start with information first, like, and you should start with like trying to communicate to people like the whole the whole aspect of, of seals, like, and the seal is is a part of a whole. Uh, uh, Economic um, ecosystem, yeah, ecosystem, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. not only in Greenland but also here in Denmark, but in the, in the whole world, of course, like like in anything, like in everything. Uh, so I would wish that people would have a bigger understanding on, yeah, how, how things can connect in, in in that aspect, and and not just put putting this seal meat in the stores because I would I really think that um, it would a lot of people off if you just put seal meat in, in, in the stores. Piss yeah. off a lot of uh, like Greenlanders? No, no, no. Or Danes? Danish, yeah. Really? Yeah, Danish, yeah. Really? Yeah, absolutely. What, can, why do you think it would piss them off? Mm, well, I, I, have, I have a lot of um, examples. Like, uh, I, I have a good friend, a Greenlander, Greenlander a woman. Uh, and, she, and she's a proud Greenlander, yeah. And she was taking a walk, not not far from here actually. And someone walked by her and spat on her coat because how dare she wear something from a seal? And and, and my friend, my Greenlander friend, was so shocked that that, that and, and she actually did, uh, began to cry. I mean, I mean in, in my opinion, I, th I think I would be thinking, okay, I would understand that happening if it would come from someone from Greenpeace, for example, who has like a very uh, uh, 
like like very strong strong views and strong opinions. Yeah. Uh, but this was coming from another Danish elderly woman. I realized, talking to Kim, that as a Greenlander, he personally wasn't too concerned about losing out on the specialness of seal meat. What he was worried about, and for good reason it seemed, is how much public education would have to accompany any commercialization of it as a food. If seal meat just suddenly ended up in stores, it could potentially prompt a backlash that could jeopardize even the Greenlanders' already restricted access to it. And besides all that, he was not at all convinced that non-Greenlanders, like me, could ever like the taste of seal. Do you think there's any possibility that that might ever catch on? Well, well I'm having my doubts, yeah. And okay. you will figure out why in about 20 minutes, I think, when <laughs> okay, my dish is ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay, we should start cooking, maybe. Yeah, sure, yeah. And let, and let, let's uh, do that. Well, I, th- I think your reaction to the smell of it would, would say everything, yeah, I would really say. Because How hot do you think we'll need? We started cooking. He made his mother's seal stew recipe. So it's a seal seal stew asset that, 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 that I'm making, and it's very traditional, uh, and, it, and it's a very it's a very simple dish actually. Yeah. We made it with the shoulder meat, which he had butchered into large red bloody chunks, and simmered in a simple broth of onion, potato, rice, and a bit of salt and pepper. And after only about 20 minutes, it came out tender and juicy. We scooped it into bowls and sat down to eat it. The taste was rich, like beef liver and game, with a not unpleasant hint of fishiness. The blubber, which clung in a thick layer to the meat, exploded in a hot, unctuous wash of fat in my mouth when I bit into it. It was delicious. That's, this is pretty amazingly tasty. And I think I really think this is, would be tasty to other like, people who are not used to eating seal. Definitely. Good to know. Good to know. Yeah. Well, and, and, and if you saw me prepare it, I mean, it was so simple. It was really, really simple. And really, really, really tasty, at least to me. I couldn't help but think that if more non-Greenlanders tasted the seal sua set, they might start to add tastiness to their other beliefs about seals. But it's still a catch-22 situation. With the seals illegal to hunt and meat distribution limited to only those on the Greenlandic database, the chance of getting more people to have this compelling taste experience is low. So, like Kim says, public education is key. This is where the work of people like Klaus Damon Henson comes in, trying to provide facts to the public and hope that they might support his campaign to keep his traditional livelihood afloat. And same with people like Jesper, who can be an important link between the values of the Sami herders and the southern Swedish birders. It's hard to know where the answers lie, But it seems when it comes to conservation and environmental policy, we, and many of our companion species, would probably benefit if we better acknowledged how human value systems shape the decisions we make. And we wonder, can deliciousness help influence those decisions for the better? Thanks to producer Meredith Hadenot for getting this seal story underway and all of her hard work getting great interviews. Thanks to Bornholm fisherman Klaus Damon Hansen, chef Marcus Junkala, and professor Kurt Buchmann for their interviews and insights. And a special thanks to Kim Falk-Peterson for the seal cooking lesson. Thanks also to Lila Speak and Jesper Anderson for the Golden Eagle story, and to Josh Evans for explaining non-human charisma for us. Music in this episode by Bicycle Face. You can find them on SoundCloud. And sounds from freesound.org. 
Studio was provided by CKW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. This episode of Nordic Food Lab Radio was produced by me, Anna Sigrether.